Well, good morning. It is great to see you this morning as we begin our Christmas journey together. And as Scott said a few moments ago, this is a journey that will take us morning and evening. It will lead us along kind of one piece leading into the next as we walk all the way to Christmas Eve together and our Christmas Eve sermons and service as a whole will kind of culminate right there as we build towards that time together. And so I encourage you to be here for all of those services. If possible, today we're going to be dealing with a faithful servant of the Lord who becomes the fulfillment of Scripture as he does so in an unexpected way, both he and his wife Elizabeth. And so take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to pick back up and we're going to go, using the example of Zechariah again, we're going to go back from there. Today, we're going in advance. We're looking ahead to what the angel is saying, what will take place. And so there's a lot that we have to glean and a lot of foundational work. You know, there's so much more to the Christmas story and the narrative of Christmas than just what we read here at the beginning of the Gospels. But each of the four Gospels present to us an amazing description, four different accounts of the birth of Christ. Not one of them say the same thing, although they're all four saying the same thing. They're all four revealing the same events, but they're coming at it from different perspectives. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew is coming at it from a very Jewish perspective, written primarily for a Jewish audience and proclaiming Christ is the king. And so the genealogy goes back to Abraham and specific emphasis on David and and leading all the way up to Christ himself, this specificity to the kingship of Christ. Mark, he begins with John the Baptist, but further down the road, he kind of joins in with the story of the narrative as it unfolds and just jumps right in. And he's writing so that we may understand that Christ is the Son of God. And then you have Luke, where we spend our time together this morning and. Luke, in his genealogy, two of the Gospels, Mark or Matthew and Luke, begin all the way back in genealogies in the past. And Luke brings us to the point all the way back to Adam, because Luke's emphasis, written primarily to a Roman audience, to a Gentile audience, Luke's emphasis is that Jesus is the Son of Man who takes away the sins of the world. So we start all the way back with Adam, and we move all the way through, and we move through some of the great testimonies of the Old Testament saints in both Matthew and as well in Luke. And then John, as we started this morning, John starts before time begins. Before there was anything, Jesus existed fully God. And he would take on flesh and dwell among us. And there would be a forerunner. The forerunner of Jesus is John the Baptist. And that is who we focus on today together as we begin our journey to Christmas and so our focus is specifically on Zechariah and Elizabeth. On October 2nd, 2009, <clears throat> thousands had gathered in downtown Chicago awaiting some specific news regarding the Olympics. There was the planning stages for the 2016 winter or the 2016 summer Olympic Games in the city. And they would be waiting for the tally to come in of the vote and they would be severely disappointed because Chicago would be the least vote-getter of all of the cities. 
And I remember reading some of the events of that and the the crowds who had gathered waiting to celebrate that the Olympics were going to come to the city of Chicago in 2016 or in the anticipation that they would, and then the serious disappointment and even the violence that came, if you can imagine that, out of Chicago. Uh, The violence uh, that would happen after because they had failed to achieve the votes, probably because of the violence uh, in the city of Chicago. But then, a couple years later, many began to see that as fortuitous because they began to look back at the Beijing games and some of the games that had been played, and they noticed the enormous cost of what it bring or what it costs, what it takes to bring the Olympic Games to a city. And they began to recognize that as they looked at the plans that they had proposed, that it would be almost inconceivable the cost that Chicago would incur because of the games brought to them. And then there would be the fame that would exist for a very short period of time, and then you would reflect back, and now we would be looking back on those games many, many years in the past. There are many times where you and I have this idea of what we want to have happen. We have this plan, we've prayed about it, we've asked the Lord for for provision and for protection, and we get to that point and then we're sorely disappointed because what we've prayed for, what we've asked for, just doesn't come to fruition. Why didn't it happen? And then years later we look back and go, oh, praise the Lord for closed doors. Zechariah is going to be one of those such figures. He is a faithful man, a righteous man. He and his wife in a land and a time where few were. But God has a plan. And it differs somewhat than Zechariah's plan. And Zechariah and Elizabeth have been bearing the brunt of being barren, being childless, in a culture that celebrates children, and especially an heir And so Zechariah and Elizabeth become an example for us of righteous living, even though Zechariah is going to fail in one point that we're going to see later tonight. But we do recognize that this is a righteous couple in a land of very few righteous, and we want to focus in on them today. The idea we focus on is this, God's plan to prepare the way for the Messiah is introduced. Why is that important? Because to this point... When Gabriel meets Zechariah, the Lord had been silent for 400 years. Let us begin this morning in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you as we begin to see now in the biblical narrative the passages unfold for us that had been long expected, long awaited. Israel in their rebellion had endured a famine on a famine of the lack of provision of food and water, but a famine of words far more dire. Lord, it had been 400 years since the book of Malachi. In that time and in that intervening time, Israel had been pawns pushed back and forth between two Greek generals, And as Rome had begun to step in and provide some sort of stability to the region, there was still godlessness. There was still great suffering. And it would be in that world where the time would be made ready for the first advent of Christ. Lord, we praise you for 
what we read together this morning as we begin this foundational work towards the Christmas events and the narrative that would unfold to us culminating in the birth of Jesus. But Lord, we know that there is a lot that takes place in the backgrounds of these events, and so we want to be faithful students, being those who, as we've sung this morning, would praise because Emmanuel has come. And Lord, we do anticipate the second coming of Christ, the one that will take us with him in the clouds, that we may be with Christ always. And so we are balanced in this time between. We want to be found faithful and living out Christ's likeness in an age that is godless, similar in many ways to the age in which Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. May we be found faithful in following the practice of this righteous couple. May we learn from Zechariah's doubts and not be like him when he questions Gabriel. But may we be found as those faithful and obedient to glorify you in all ways. Lord, we praise you for the Christmas season and the joy that it is. And we pray that we would truly be those who celebrate the birth of our Savior. We ask your blessing upon our time now. And we ask that you would allow us to be ears that listen, hearts to obey. And that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this special season that we are in. And we pray that we would maximize it for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As we begin this morning, we begin where the Gospels begin, and that is that a famine ends. There is a famine that has been brought, promised in Amos chapter 8, verse 11, because of the rebellion of the people of Israel. They were promised a silent period, a famine of words, Amos says, where the Lord would not speak, where the Lord would not give revelation to the prophets, and the prophets would go silent as well. This would be a time of great turmoil for the nation of Israel and the people of Israel because it would be shortly thereafter that Alexander the Great would pass away. He would come through and conquer all of the area of Palestine, of Israel, all the way out to what is modern-day Iraq and Iran. And when he would arrive there, he would die very early on. And he would divide up his quickly established kingdom, or the kingdom rather would be divided up, among four generals. And the generals that had taken over the area where Israel was found Israel in the crosshairs. You had the Ptolemics to the south and the Seleucids to the north, and they would constantly war over a very important land bridge named Israel. And that would cause great suffering and great hurt for the people of Israel, and they would cry out, but God would not respond for 400 years. You'd have the Maccabean revolt during this time. You would have all of the sufferings that would would come because of the revolt. You would have the Potomacs pressing hard and, and causing great suffering, such as Antichus Epiphanes, who would eventually offer a hog on the altar, the temple, to the God of Israel. That is the land of Israel at this time. And this famine is about to break. And as we begin in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, notice the text there. The scripture says this, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. 
as we begin to unpack this family where the famine ends, Luke does something quite astounding to us. Remember what I said a few moments ago, Luke was written primarily for a Gentile audience, but that does not mean he excludes Israel. In fact, we see Israelites play a significant role throughout the entirety of the book of Luke, and Luke gives specific and detailed accounts of some of those individuals all the way down to the finer details of Elizabeth's heritage as coming from Aaron and Zechariah's heritage as being the priest who was serving as the high priest at this time. We recognize as well that Matthew, while it is written primarily to a Jewish audience, spends specific and important time on Gentiles around the Christmas narrative. It is Matthew's gospel that brings out the Magi and Herod's role. Matthew's the one that brings out the Gentile audience, and Luke is the one who brings out much of the Jewish audience and those who are participating in the Christmas events. And so Luke begins at this time, as a priestly family is identified, Luke begins to identify it as the time of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the great builder of some of the significant structures in Israel. If you were to go to Israel today, you could go to Megiddo, or rather to, uh, yeah, to Megiddo, and you would see significant structures built there. And then you would go to other places where Herod had constructed these great and enormous places. You would be able to see some of his handiwork, as Herod was known for being a great builder. And that is how kings and rulers of that era were identified. You were great by what you were able to build. And Herod was a master builder. He would build fortresses in Masada and other places. He would build significant structures, and one of those would include an expansion of Solomon's temple. And that is the temple that Jesus would be in some 30 years later. But as Luke begins to unfold the narrative. He reminds us of the time. This is Herod in charge, no longer the Greeks. The Greeks had kicked Israel back and forth between themselves, and Rome had come in at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes and removed the Greeks from power and established their own authority there. And so Israel is experiencing a relative calm, but that relative calm comes at the hands of a terrible leader, one who at any cost will build his kingdom. And he's done significant work on the temple, Masada, and other places. Zechariah emerges out of the midst of that. Notice again as Luke declares this for us in verse 5. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijai. And he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It's fascinating to me that... Luke says it's in the time of Herod the Great, this great and terrible builder. And in the midst of that, in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the 400 silent years, Zechariah is mentioned. Zechariah was a priest of a prestigious division, the division of Abijah, which according to 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10, is of the eighth division of priests. It is a high priestly class, and each division would serve in the priestly responsibilities twice a year. And so this is the second time, perhaps, 
that Zechariah has been serving in the temple, and he is the chief priest serving there in the temple. Not only was Zechariah of a family of priests, but Elizabeth was also of the line of priests, extending all the way to Aaron. And hers was even of a higher class than of Zechariah. And you can imagine the social and societal pressures that have been placed on Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke doesn't detail it for us, but we certainly would understand the pressures that this couple would face. They are both of prestigious priestly classes, both of high esteem, and yet there's no heir. What have you done wrong, Zechariah and Elizabeth? You're of this high priestly class, blessed by God to be in this class, and you have no children. But Luke does reveal something about them that's very important, and it flies counter to that societal pressure. Notice verse 6. He says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. This is an astounding statement of the spiritual well-being of Zechariah and Elizabeth, despite all of the societal pressures and those on the outside who didn't know anything anyway, and all of their gossip sessions talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, Zechariah and Elizabeth were a couple of tremendous faith. They were righteous. Luke further describes the faith of this couple as being righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes. I could not find any other place in all of the scriptures where this designation was given to a couple. This is a significant statement. Luke is not saying that they were sinless, but rather that they were faithful to observe the Old Testament law in every detail. For the believer today, I want to pull us out for just a moment. For the believer today, as we enter into the Christmas season, The example of this godly couple should urge us onward, should push us forward, propel us forward, and challenged by the words of 1 John 3, 7, which say, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. That was Zechariah and Elizabeth. Will you let Zechariah and Elizabeth propel your righteousness this Christmas season? That's is one of the tremendous things that stands out to me. In the midst of a wicked and perverse world, you have a very small handful of God followers, faithful and obedient. Simeon and Anna were also named as righteous, not with the same designation as Zechariah and Elizabeth, but they were named as righteous. You have Joseph and Mary, and you have Zechariah and Elizabeth. Were there other righteous? Most certainly there were, but the idea is that there were only a very small handful of those in Israel who were righteous, and Zechariah and Elizabeth are among them. This couple was righteous even before, or even when it had been 400 years since the Lord had last spoken to the people of Israel. 400 tumultuous years. During those years, the once glorious temple had been stripped and desecrated as as it had been foretold in Daniel chapter 9. It was Antichus Epiphanes who would do that desecration of the temple. There were very few faithful followers of God in the land of Israel. Those that had existed, many of them had been killed in the Maccabean revolts. 
Many of them had been killed in the battles back and forth between Jewish religious leaders and the powers that were in charge, whether it be the Greeks or the Romans. And so very few faithful Israelites remained. And one couple stands out above most of the rest, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Beloved, we live in a wicked age, an age where it is easy to follow after the ideals and the pressures of the crowds around us. Will you be Zechariah and Elizabeth? Will you be righteous in an age of unrighteousness? Will you be faithful in an age of unfaithfulness? In fact, as we continue, Luke continues in his description as they had faced an overwhelming trials, and he speaks of it in verse 7. He says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Can you imagine Zechariah returning to the city of Jerusalem to perform the priestly responsibilities? And here he is performing those priestly responsibilities in the midst of overwhelming trials. He and Elizabeth are older. The hope of children has long since diminished. And the pressures of his peers, the pressures of those outside of his peers, would certainly have pushed him to question who he was, why God had not allowed them to have children. Each of the four Gospels, as I've mentioned, begins differently in telling the message of the birth of Christ. Luke opens his letter by going all the way back to Adam and opening the birth narrative with a forerunner named John the Baptist. The Lord had allowed this righteous couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, to endure sufferings because the Lord was going to do something miraculous through them. The Lord was going to break the famine through them. This famine of words. They had endured enormously difficult times as they had no doubt many times prayed together as a couple. They had no doubt many times had Zechariah go in the offerings and pray that they would receive a child from the Lord. At this point, they were well advanced in years, well past the point of childbearing. And evidently, they had prayed for a child by the Lord, but the Lord had not provided them one. But God was about to end the famine of words with a great event, and this couple would find themselves right in the middle of the biblical narrative of the birth of the Messiah. Begin to notice with me the divine appointment, beginning in verse 8. The Scripture says, Now while he was serving, that is, Zechariah was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And a whole multitude of the people were praying outside in the hour of incense. Let's stop there for just a moment as we begin to unfold Malachi's prophecy because something astounding is about to take place. You can almost feel the anticipation build as Luke has started by revealing to us the, the lineage of Christ through Adam and he's revealed to himself, revealed to Theophilus, this is the reason he's going to do so. But before he even gets to the lineage of Christ, he's going to start with John the Baptist. And you can see there's some pressure building by Luke as he's beginning to unfold the narrative of the coming Christ. In the final words that the Lord speaks to the people of Israel 400 years earlier, the Lord speaks of one who would break the famine. 
Go back to Malachi, just a couple books back. It's the last Old Testament book, Malachi chapter 3. And notice what the Lord says in His last words to the people of Israel. Malachi chapter 3. The Lord for the last time will speak for 400 years, and He says this in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord says that there's going to be a famine, Amos 8. And then in Malachi, he says that the Lord will come, the one that you seek is going to come into the temple, but before he does, there's going to be a forerunner. There's going to be one who's going to lay open the path to prepare the way before the Messiah. If we look ahead a little bit further into chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of Malachi, notice the scripture there. These are the very last words that are spoken And the Scripture says this in verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now turn back to Luke. Having Malachi ringing in our ears, the last words spoken, listen to the angelic description of John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 400 years had gone by. The Lord had spoken through the prophet Malachi that there's going to be one the spirit of Elijah who's going to come. And Gabriel's message to Zechariah is, you're going to have a child. And the child is going to be the forerunner. He's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be the one who's going to make straight the paths for Christ. We find that Luke is picking up where the Lord had left off 400 years earlier. Can you imagine the hearts of the faithful in Israel finally recognizing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. For 400 years, they had anticipated the coming Messiah. And Luke picks up on the very last words that had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Malachi. And Gabriel utters them to Zechariah. And Zechariah's service begins to unfold. Notice Zechariah in chapter, or chapter 1 of verse 8 back in the Gospel of Luke. The Scripture says, Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. This is Zechariah's service. Zechariah has come faithful and obedient, unaware of what the Lord is about to reveal to them. And it is truly amazing to me that when we are following the Lord, he directs the right people in the right direction that leads us where we ought to be. All of the timing of this is certainly of the Lord. Zechariah had nothing to do with it. It was his division's turn to be priests in the temple, and he's the one selected to go in to the Holy of Holies. This is astounding 
on this day of incense that he is going to go in and offer the incense offering, and it is him who's called to go before. The Lord has directed the time in this announcement to come when Zechariah was in Jerusalem as part of his priestly responsibilities, which, as I indicated, would happen roughly twice a year. Nonetheless, this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. This was going to be very different from every other time that Zechariah had been in Jerusalem. This time, Zechariah would engage in the actual offering. Notice, again, as the Scripture says in verse 8 and 9, that he was serving as the priest before God when his division was on duty. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. Zechariah did not go to Jerusalem in the anticipation that, hey, this is my year. I get to go in, I get to offer the incense, this is my opportunity. Zechariah did not plot this out. The Lord had chosen this period of Zechariah's service to draw him in to the Holy of Holies, and he is chosen to serve. Zechariah was chosen by the casting of lots to serve as the priest who would enter into the temple and burn the incense. This was truly a once-in-a-lifetime event for the priests of Israel. This would happen one time in the life of a priest. Notice verses 9 and 10. It says, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And so there is a big picture. There's a lot going on, but the Lord pulls out one individual from all of the worshipers. And he draws him in in a -a once-in-a-lifetime event for the priest. And the offering of incense was symbolic of the prayers that would be lofted to the Lord. And so this was a specific and important time as Luke details. And it indicates that there were people gathered outside at the hour of incense, all of them praying. And you can imagine that all of them praying around what would be around 3 o'clock in the afternoon that Zechariah is drawing in and pouring out his own burdens before the Lord, lifting his own prayers before the Lord. And among them, most likely would have been, at least as Luke is indicating, Lord, why do we not have an heir? Skip ahead for just a moment to verse 21. Notice what begins to happen. There begins to be some awareness of trouble. Verse 21 says, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. Zechariah has gone in. He's offered the offering of incense. He's praying, certainly before the Lord. And the witnesses are outside. They would have had the opportunity to see the first evidence of the coming Christ. They were all paying attention. Zechariah has been in there for a long time. Is he going to come back out? Or are we going to have to send in something to get him? Someone to get him? And notice what's happening inside in this delay, in this period where Zechariah is normally going to walk into the Holy of Holies, offer the sacrifice, and walk back out. Notice he meets somebody there in his angelic encounter. 
Verse 13, or verse 11 through 13, the scripture says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. It's fascinating. Why angels? Angels become a significant elements to the entire Christmas narrative. In fact, one specific angel becomes very important. His name is Gabriel. He's going to come to Zechariah here, and he's also going to come to Joseph, and he's going to come to Mary. Why angels? On the right side of the altar of incense stands Gabriel. The angel announces the coming of the forerunner. The angel announces the coming birth of the Savior, They announce his birth and rejoice at the grand event, and they are there when the shepherds come to see Jesus. Never in history have so many angelic beings been visible in the human realm as much as they were at the time of the birth of Christ. One of the reasons, according to J.C. Ryle, was this, that it was meant to teach that the Messiah was no angel, but the Lord of angels as well as men. In other words, what Ryle is saying in this question, why angels? He's saying the reason is because of the significant importance of the King of kings and Lord of lords who is above the angels, that the angels proclaim him. It was to show that this child was no ordinary child, that the events surrounding were no ordinary events, and that the birth of John was to proclaim and to lay straight the path for the Messiah to come. According to verse 19, we know that this angel is Gabriel. And verse 19 says of Luke 1, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. The same will proclaim the news of the baby to Mary and to Joseph. Zechariah responds as you could imagine he would respond. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's drawn near to the Lord and those with impure motives or impure hearts would be cast dead instantly upon entering into the Holy of Holies. And here is Zechariah and here is a fearsome being standing there. Zechariah responds in great fear. Verse 11 and 12, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Zechariah's response to the angel, as all of the righteous would have responded, and every time we see a righteous individual entertaining an angelic being, they respond in the same way. They respond with great fear and great troubling. And certainly that would have been an understatement for Zechariah. Here he is performing his priestly responsibilities and he's in the the temple in the Holy of Holies and here is an angelic being. He most certainly fears that there is some sense of unrighteousness in him and he's about to be put to death. But Zechariah, as the angel will calm those nerves, as we'll see in just a moment, Zechariah will eventually respond in verse 18, and notice how he responds. And pay special attention to this, by the way, because Mary's going to respond to the angelic being as well, to Gabriel. And hers will be different. 
Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah will eventually respond to the angel with questions. And those questions, as we will observe tonight, as we return to Zechariah, will result in the Lord breaking his silence, the famine of silence for 400 years, by striking Zechariah silent. And Zechariah will be silent for nine months. Zechariah's fears, likely because of the great weakness that he felt in the presence of the heavenly inhabitant, causes Zechariah to begin to trouble greatly. And as Zechariah begins to compose himself, he begins to doubt that God can do what the angel said. Mary will have questions too. And we will see some similarities as we go through our journey to Christmas, how there are similarities between Zechariah's questions and Mary's questions, but there is one considerable difference. And I'm not going to give it to you today. Study is the journey to Christmas. What is the one significant difference between Mary's questions and Zechariah's questions? Zechariah's question causes him to be struck silent for nine months. Well, Mary goes on to sing the Magnificent, the praise, the hymn of praise to the Lord. But notice, going back, as we're skipping ahead a bit, go back, go back into verse 13, where the angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Can you imagine as the truth of this begins to wash over Zechariah? My prayer that I've prayed countless times. I'm old. Elizabeth is old. The prayer that I've prayed countless times. God was about to answer. And he would answer it in the most dramatic of fashions. The angel brings incredible news at a time of significance, of tremendous significance. The Lord had answered the prayers of this righteous couple. And they would soon have a son. The son that the angel speaks to Zechariah will be named John. And verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What the angel proclaims of this child is that he would be the forerunner, the promised one of Malachi, the promised one that when the Lord stopped speaking, the next events in the timeline of God's timing, that child would be given to Zechariah and to Elizabeth. Zechariah certainly understood the significance 
He certainly understood when the angels spoke in verse 17 that he would be of the spirit of Elijah. Zechariah certainly would have thought right back to the moment in Malachi chapter 4 where the Lord had stopped speaking to the people of Israel. Zechariah knew who this child would be. They would have a son, and the son's name would be Zechariah. Or rather, the son's name would be John. And the Lord would break his silence after 400 years. No wonder Zechariah is in offering incense longer than the people could imagine. But when he comes out, when Zechariah steps out from the Holy of Holies to the crowd that is now every eye turned to the curtain, because they're waiting to see if they've got to go rescue Zechariah, or rather pull out a dead body from the Holy of Holies. They're, all eyes are fixed there of the crowd that is there at 3 o'clock, and it, the clock continues to tick along, and Zechariah hasn't come, and he hasn't come, and he hasn't come. Zechariah is going to step forward, and as he steps forward, no words will come from his mouth. Certainly, Zechariah will attempt to speak, but nothing will be shared. And for the first announcement of the coming Messiah among the crowds of the people of Israel, there will be no sound. But there will be evidence that God is doing something miraculous. In Luke 1, we find a couple who are found faithful by the Lord, even though they had to wait to see the Lord's answer to their prayers for years. They could never have imagined that when the Lord did answer their prayers, it would break 400 years of silence. It would pave the way for the Messiah. And the child that they would carry in their arms was the promised one of Malachi's prophecy. Zechariah knew, and Elizabeth knew, that John was not an ordinary child. Ordinary in the sense that he was human in every way. Ordinary in the sense that he had a human father and a human mother, unlike Christ, who was incarnate God that was of the Holy Spirit, did not have a human father did not bear the sin that you and I have, the sin nature that you and I have, but John would nonetheless be a child of prophecy. John would be the child that would be the forerunner to the Messiah. Can you imagine Zechariah and Elizabeth holding John and knowing that Scripture spoke of what this child would do? Zechariah was a godly man with a godly wife. He knew the Scriptures, and he was faithful in them. But it is interesting to me that the bustle of the season, not the Christmas season, the season in which Zechariah would be serving in the temple and then chosen by Lot to offer the offering of incense, in that bustle, 
in that season. It would cause him to question and rebel against the greatest news Israel had received yet. Are you doing the same? So convinced your way is right? So convinced that your prayer is the way that God will answer your prayer requests? So convinced that you're the one who knows the course and the direction? Pushing against the Word of God, pushing against the church? your employer, or your family. You can be righteous like Zechariah and push against those things just as Zechariah did. My encouragement to you is to be like Zechariah in his righteousness and to submit humbly to God's direction. The one point that Zechariah misses, which we'll build upon this evening, is that he begins to question the validity of of what God can do. Because he had prayed, and he had prayed, and he would prayed, and he prayed, and the Lord begins to answer his prayers, and Zacharias says, I don't think you can do it anymore. I don't think you can do it. Beloved, let us not be as Zachariah was in that moment. Let us be as Zachariah was when John was born, and proclaim the excellencies of God who will fulfill his word Not just the word through the Christmas events, but his word that he's promised to us throughout his entirety of the scriptures. May we be found faithful to be righteous, to practice as Zechariah and Elizabeth did, godliness in an ungodly age. And as we begin the foundation elements to the Christmas stories, to the narrative as it unfolds before us, let us be found faithful to follow their example. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for Zechariah and Elizabeth. We thank you that you had raised this couple up and given them many years of barrenness that the forerunner of the Messiah would come through them. Lord, I can't imagine the pressures that would have been on Zechariah that day as he heard Gabriel speak and his mind swirling with questions Some of those questions eking out reveals a lack of faith. Lord, I pray that we would be found faithful and obedient in observing their righteous behavior, their righteousness before you. That we would not follow in Zechariah's rebellious questions, but that we would follow in Zechariah's righteousness that we would be people of godliness as we sing these Christmas songs that remind us of the first advent of Christ. May we be those who are found faithful in observing the culture in which Christ would come. That we would also observe the necessity of following after Christ in our culture that is broken and is sinful, that is in desperate need of the Messiah. It reminds us of the first Christmas, a world that is broken, a world that is godless, a world that has been in rebellion against the creator of the universe in desperate need of a Savior. Lord, as the birth of Christ will unfold in the narratives before us, may we be found faithful and obedient in celebrating not just 
the news of Christmas and the joy of the season. But may we be found faithful in celebrating the reason that Christ has come to redeem sinful humanity, to allow us the opportunity to be found as redeemed, and to give to us the gift of eternal life as the perfect Lamb of God who take away the sins of the world. Lord, there is so much for us to learn. We know these narratives well. We've studied them for years, decades even. But I pray that as we dig into these great truths, we would be caught anew, that they would be refreshing to our souls, and that your name would be glorified above all names as we bring you praise and glory throughout this Christmas season. I pray that we would start now as we lift our voices together in song in our continued worship of you. Lord, I pray that in these words we would not sing them out of rote routine, but we would sing them out of joyful expression of praise, the worship that is due you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray these things. Amen.